Hey, welcome to this uh, bonus episode of Leftist Labor History. My name is Nate, and I'm the host. And what I wanted to talk about today, so this is coming up. Um, so I, I just finished, the last episode I recorded was uh, the New Deal episode. I wanted to um, highlight something that I haven't done a great job of covering, and uh, just just to point this out and to make you aware of it. Um, but I wanted to start with a meme that I saw on Twitter and it's very niche and it had like probably 25 likes. Um, but the meme is, uh, the, the format is there's, there's a couple kids in a pool and a woman who is, you know, appears to be teaching a child to swim and she's kind of like, there's a smiling child and the woman's holding her hands. And then there's a child who is in distress in the foreground, right? Um, and the woman in this meme is labor historians. The smiling child is dockers, car workers, and miners. And the child that's in distress is hospital workers and caring labor. And down at the bottom of the ocean, there's a skeleton and that skeleton is retail workers, right? So the meme is saying, you know, labor historians coddle car workers and miners, as I have done, um, true to form, and neglect uh, people who perform caring labor um, and, and retail workers, right? And so I wanted to talk about this, right? So the thing that should jump out or that may jump out at you is that people who do caring labor and people who work in retail, um, traditionally these are more feminine jobs and being an auto worker, being a dock worker, these are more masculine jobs, right? So um, there is there is a gender bias to the classics of labor history, which is what I'm drawing on for this series. And so you may have noticed that um, I'm, I'm, I'm re I've been reproducing this, this bias um, against the, the, against women about against women workers and against uh, the work that women traditionally have performed. Um, so partly for myself, um, that is, that's due to, a blind spot um, is my, my own failing. I'm a I'm a man who just doesn't instinctively uh, notice those kinds of things. Um, partly is that I am going, you know, moving at a pretty rapid clip through, you know, a few hundred years of of history, and there are things uh, such as you know the there are things that I had to skip over. One of the notable things is the largely female workforce of textile mills in New England, in Massachusetts, uh, particularly Lowell, Massachusetts. Um, women and girls were the workforce. Um, and that's a whole thing that, that I could get into and just decided to cut. Um, and, and another reason, you know, the last kind of reason why this series has reproduced that bias is that Again, a lot of the classic texts in labor history are are written by men and are, you know, are privileged toward 
or you know they favor these masculine jobs. So I want to talk about that historiography um, uh, and why that why it came about that way, why that happened. So a lot of these classic labor texts were written by historians in the 60s and 70s and this and and they were part of the new left and it was a it was a pretty explicit explicitly political project a lot of these guys were marxists or you know kind of new deal democrats um you know a lot of them were men um you know white or jewish men and uh they're they were very much interested in this kind of heyday of labor as they saw it um and they were very interested in radical labor um, as leftists. So they kind of valorized uh, the IWW. So if you look at this, if you look through, you know, a lot of this, these classic labor texts, they're writing a lot about like the Knights of Labor and the IWW. When in fact, like, you know, the American Federation of Labor, which was a more conservative labor had a more conservative labor philosophy i mean vastly outnumbered like the wobblies um but these guys were you know there was this kind of bias towards radical action um and and along with that is they were very focused on the 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 site of you know wage labor where you know factory labor hard labor manual labor um because that's where a lot of a lot of people organized is you got a lot of unions. I mean, there were definitely, uh, unions of women led by women, um, or composed of women and led by men, um, like the garment workers. Uh, but, um, you know, these guys were interested in the radicals who were going to go out and bust heads. So you do get a fo you do get a focus on miners. You get a focus on you know dock workers. Dock workers, for whatever reason, uh, there's this radical tradition. Um, these labor historians, who were largely men, tended to gravitate towards this more militant, radical labor, which was done by um, you know men in traditionally masculine industries. I mean, there's also the fact that, you know, in, in Euro-American society, in white society, labor, you know, the labor that is considered productive by society at large, which is to say, you know, wage labor or, or you know, um, you know, kind of artisan labor, this is the kind of labor that has excluded women for the most part. And so if you if your idea of labor is something where you work for wages, then already you're defining labor around, you know, the population of, of, which is largely men. Now this is not to say that, um, and again, I mean, and then, you know, you have a sexist bias creep in where you're ignoring the women who are doing wage labor, farm labor, um, there's a racial component to this as well. So white women traditionally do domestic labor in the home. Um, while, you know, black women, uh, Latin American women, immigrant women are, have been working, you know, throughout, um, 
throughout history. So work is gendered, work is racialized, work is at the intersection of, of class and race and gender and all these different things. Um, so another thing that feeds into this sort of selectivity where labor historians are focused disproportionately on men. One other thing to understand is that uh, social, what we call social history, what historians call social history, which is, which is history written from the perspective of, you know, the average person, right? This is history written from the perspective of uh, social movements and people who were, you know, at the kind of like a grassroots level. So traditionally history is, is written from the perspective of leaders. Um, and, you know, history is about legal documents and treaties and war and these things that are kind of happening. They're being directed by people or seemingly directed by people, you know, at this top level. And of course, that's not how history unfolds as, you know, as we now know. But before about the 60s and 70s, before, um, you know, social historians came up with a methodology, there wasn't really, the emphasis on history was more about like, historians were trying to be very scientific about their, about their discipline. And, you know, I mean, the, the roots of, of kind of modern history go back to, um, you know, uh, people are, are testing the, the, the paper that, uh, these important documents were written on for the authenticity of, of, you know, whatever Magna Carta of, or whatever. I don't know if that's a good example, but, um, you know, historians are, are so focused in on these legal documents and determining the authenticity, um, through these, you know, scientific methods. Um, and so if your approach is, is, if your approach to history is coming from the, from that lens, then an oral history has basically no verifiable authenticity, right? There's all sorts of problems with, um, with an oral history. And so a lot of this, a lot of the, the experiences and a lot of the lives of average people, which aren't recorded in these, you know, official annals of, of whatever, um, they're just ignored by historians until historians know what to do with them. So the new left is, it really plays an important role in developing a methodology where social history can be written. Um, oral histories are are, um, you know, the kind of, the kind of faults of one individual's oral history is accounted for in, in developing a fuller picture of what it is that an average person might've experienced and, and how that is contributed to the unfolding of history. So we have this, we have this fuller picture now, um, uh, thanks to social history, thanks to social historians, um, that, that wasn't really developed, um, until this time. And, you know, you have the new left kind of focusing on this stuff. And in the wake of that, then you have women's history, you have gender history, you have black history. 
it kind of took that, you know, you kind of had to turn the, the discipline to where you could, you could incorporate more of the experiences of, of people who were excluded from official, you know, leadership roles, such as women, such as black people, such as immigrants, etc. Um, so now, and there's been a lot of, there's been a lot of really great scholarship. Um, and in particular, so, you know, fairly recent development is, uh, the, uh, the articulation of the idea of emotional labor, which, um, Arlie Hochschild developed that idea in the eighties, I believe. 70s or 80s, but this is the idea, and this is this is the idea, at least initially, emotional labor was the kind of labor where you, your work, your job is to create an emotional state in yourself in order, so customer service, for instance, um, any job basically where the customer is always right, part of the job, I mean, like you may be, uh, um, you know, people say you're flipping burgers or whatever, that may be part of your job, but really the job is to be, act like you're happy to be there. So that's the idea of emo emotional labor and it's hard work. <laughs> if you've ever worked a job like that, you understand, like if you've ever been a server in a restaurant, you're doing emotional labor you're you're creating you're putting yourself into an emotional state because that's what people are are, are there for um and a lot of that work is done again tr traditionally by women so you know kind of helping to articulate this this type of labor is to help kind of bring that labor out of the shadows and help to reverse the erasure of that kind of labor. Um, a similar concept is affective labor, affective labor. So like this is labor, which produces an affect in, in the customer. So it's kind of a similar concept, but, um, um, the, the, the theorists Hart and Negri frequent collaborators, uh, Michael Hart and Antonio Negri, I believe. Um, and so they developed this idea of affective labor. Um, so, uh, you know, nursing, for instance, or, you know, working in a, in a care facility. This is part of labor that is often done in care work, which again, traditionally feminine. And again, this is hard work. Your job is to produce produce an affect, produce a particular reaction in a person that you are working with. Um, and we don't, I, I mean, there, this, this kind of bias against that kind of work continues to this day because we think of, I mean, a lot, I, I see a lot of discourse about, you know, who the working class is online. And it's like, you're, if you're not a, a mechanic, or if you're not like, you know, hoisting girders to build a whatever, you know, if you're not in the building trades or something, then you're not really working class or whatever. It's like, yeah, that's a different kind of work for sure. Like manual labor is, is hard. It's definitely hard. I don't want to do it. 
Um, but again, I mean, this emotional labor, affective labor, this is also hard work. Care work is hard work. And, you know, it's not explicitly uh, something that's gendered, but but the context, the historical uh, and cultural context of, of this kind of type of labor is, I mean, we're reproducing a bias against traditionally feminine labor when we discount that kind of care work. Um, and that goes for wage labor, for one. So, uh, for instance, nursing, um, you know, as an example, or, you know, retail, customer service or whatever, but also the labor, you know, domestic labor, unpaid domestic labor that happens in the home, which is traditionally feminine. Um, this is vital work, right? Raising children, um, you know, maintaining the, 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 you know, keeping a home, uh, keeping everybody sane in a household, in a community, in a family, this is, this is labor, um, and is vital. Another thing, and this is something that, uh, you know, when we talk about these, this traditional masculine militant, you know, labor history, something that all that often gets written out of the story is how vital community is to labor organizing you cannot have a strike without a community um and that community can be you know strictly just your union local but more often you're getting support from the community and the 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 work of maintaining community often falls on women and it's thankless and, and that that work is erased if you have workers on strike they don't get paid <laughs> okay so you have strike funds so unions have strike funds to deal with that and to help mitigate that you're not drawing your full paycheck out of the strike funds but you know the idea is hopefully you can pay your bills um and beyond that, I mean, strike funds run out quickly. If you want to be able to hold out, you're going to do a lot better if you have the support of your community. If you're going to be able to get, you know, sack lunches brought to you. Well, who's doing who's doing that work? Well, it's it's wives and and sisters and and aunts and nieces who are doing that work, um, for the most part. And that's, that's very important work. Um, you know, there is, there's a whole kind of ecosystem. There's a whole infrastructure that supports labor organizing. I just wanted to point that out. And I am always, uh, you know, I'm aware of, of, of this, this kind of shortcoming of mine, this blind spot of mine, and, and I'm working on it, you know, um, always trying to to read more and learn more but i did want to point that out and if you have felt like this series has been biased in a gendered way you wouldn't be wrong um and i'm gonna you know i will i will talk more about that in the in the last couple episodes and um and yeah um so I, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but I am I am definitely interested in talking to 
anybody. Um, if you are, you know, if, if I've, if I've completely misrepresented or mischaracterized something in an episode and you want to, you know, take me to task or, or, uh, you know, correct the record, please do, please reach out. Um, I am definitely in favor of, of good information being presented, right? So fact check me. Um, I mean, if you're an expert in a topic and you want to expound on it and you think it'd be worthwhile, hit me up and let's, let's do an interview. Um, anyway, thanks for tuning in and stay tuned for, uh, the final two episodes. Thanks. Bye.